From Unpacked, I'm Rifki Stern, and you're listening to This Week Unpacked. Thank you to the Jewish Federation of Greater Rochester for sponsoring this week's episode. If you too are interested in sponsoring future episodes, be in touch at podcasts at jewishunpacked.com. That's podcasts with an S at the end. Before we begin, a quick disclaimer. This episode is longer than usual because today's issue is a little bit difficult for many, and we want it to be sensitive to all of the parties involved. Let us know how we did. Again, email us, podcasts at jewishunpacked.com. Have you ever been to the Western Wall, also known as the Kotel? In the years when I lived in Israel, I was lucky enough to be in the old city of Jerusalem, and I spent time at least once, almost every single day, praying, writing, and thinking at the Western Wall. For many of us, every single time that we visit Jerusalem, we have to stop there, even if only for a few minutes. The place is spiritual, mystical, and deeply meaningful to so many of us. But it's also a place with deep tensions. And no story represents this tension better than an organization called Women of the Wall, an Israeli feminist group whose stated goal is to, quote, attain social and legal recognition of our right as women to wear prayer shawls and pray and read from the Torah collectively and aloud at the Western Wall, end quote. And all of those things in traditional Judaism are reserved for men. Coming up on the show this week, we're unpacking the latest conflict between the Women of the Wall, its detractors, and the Israeli police. And we'll ask, why is this so controversial? And how do Israelis and the entire Jewish world feel about this group and the protests? As we say in Yiddish, Viter, let's dive in. For years, the Women of the Wall have been holding monthly services at the Western Wall on Rosh Chodesh, the first day of the new Hebrew month. And last week during the services, clashes broke out when hundreds of Orthodox protesters gathered at the site to demonstrate against the controversial women's group. But before the event actually happened, there was already a buildup of tension. Many Orthodox Jews are incensed at what they see as disrespect toward both the Western Wall and Orthodox Judaism. The day before the event, Aryeh Deri, the leader of the Shas political party, called for a protest against the women's group. He tweeted, quote, I call on everyone for whom the sanctity of the Western Wall is important to come and pray with us so that, God forbid, the holy place will not be desecrated. Former Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu then retweeted that post, getting it even more attention. Meanwhile, Gilad Kariv, a Knesset member in the Labour Party who is also a Reform rabbi, is staunchly in the pro-women of the wall camp. Since becoming a Knesset member seven months ago, Kariv has been using the parliamentary immunity to bring Torah scrolls to the women's group, which is against the rules. And he planned on doing that again last week, which opponents found to be another provocation. As tensions continue to mount leading up to the event, in an effort to prevent a serious conflict from taking place, Israeli President Isaac Herzog asked Kharif to stay away from the site and let things cool down. He explained in a statement that when he remembered how the temple was destroyed, that is, because of infighting among the Jewish people 2,000 years ago, he was in particular pain. Quote, the possibility of elected officials brawling at the remains of the temple, Judaism's holy site, gives me great anguish. End quote. So Kariv agreed to the president's request not to attend, and it did seem to ratchet down the tension somewhat, because following his announcement, Derry and other Haredi Knesset members said that they too would skip the event. However, despite Herzog's last-minute intervention and most Knesset members canceling their visits, there were still minor clashes. But in order to understand any of this, we must first begin with the context. 
So who are the women at the wall? A fantastic podcast episode from the Israel Story podcast tells the history of how the movement was born and the opposition they have faced over the years. I honestly couldn't say enough about how good this show is. We recommend listening to the episode for the full story, but here's a very quick summary. As we stated earlier, the group's mission is to attain legitimacy for their right as women to wear prayer shawls and pray and read from the Torah at the Western Wall. In a video four years ago, Leslie Sachs, the group executive's director, explained, We don't feel at home in a place where we cannot wear our talit and read together from the Torah. It's our right as Jews in the Jewish state. The group formed in December 1988 during the first International Jewish Feminist Conference in Jerusalem. Here's what happened. A group of 100 women who were attending the conference decided to go to the Western Wall, and they attempted to read from the Torah in the women's section. Many Orthodox worshippers, men and women both, saw this as akin to non-Muslims blatantly flouting Muslim law in mosques, or non-Christians being disrespectful of Christianity when entering churches. They were incredibly offended, and they harassed the women, both physically and verbally, in an attempt to end this disrespect. Due to mounting tension, the police stopped the women's services, but the event ended up sparking a movement, and from then on, a group of Jerusalem women resolved to gather there every Rosh Chodesh with a Torah, Tefillin, and Talitot. They eventually formed this organization, Women of the Wall. The group has gained significant opposition among the Orthodox Israeli community. In the views of the protesters, the Western Wall is a religious, holy place, and therefore people who come there should follow Orthodox rules as a sign of respect. This is true in general, by the way. In the eyes of the protesters at the Western Wall, it is only appropriate that everyone follow tradition. Women and men are separated with a partition or a mechitza. Women do not wear tefillin, talitot, and kippot, and they certainly don't read from the Torah. And women and men are both asked to dress a certain way, and men are expected to wear kippot. In their eyes, the women of the wall are being purposely provocative. But the women of the wall strongly dispute this. They insist that the Western Wall is holy for them too, and it should be open to all modes of prayer, not only the Orthodox way. Further, they insist that their group acts fully in accordance with Orthodox law, that there is no issue with women wearing talitot and tefillin and kippot. Now, I don't want to get into all the details of Orthodox law. And as always, there's a spectrum of opinion and practice, but I do think it's fair to say that though some Orthodox leaders are comfortable with women wearing ritual garb and reading from the Torah, most Orthodox leaders strongly frown upon it, if not banning it outright. And if you walk into 95, maybe more percent of Orthodox synagogues today, you're not going to see any women wearing these things. Again, that's not to say we're making judgments here, but I just want to make sure we're being accurate. And while we're focused on making sure we're being a thousand percent accurate, I also want to be clear. Though many, many Haredim and Orthodox Jews disagree with the women of the wall and feel uncomfortable with their goals, it's only a small opposition who actually protest, especially with violent physical assault. Of course, this doesn't need to be said, but any amount of violence and harassment is too much. But I think you know what I mean. It definitely makes me feel better to know how tiny the group actually is. And there are thoughtful and important opposition pieces published about Women of the Wall. And as always, we'll include the links to those in the show notes. There's even a countergroup called Women for the Wall, created by traditional Orthodox women. They argue that the Western Wall, quote, should not be turned into a political battleground and media circus, and religious articles such as talitot, tefillin, and prayer books should not be props with which to promote a political agenda. 
political fight should be taken to the Knesset and the Supreme Court, and holy sites should be revered, not used as wedges to drive political issues. The women of the wall are engaged in political provocation at the Western Wall, and that must end, end quote. And it's not only a Haredi issue. In 2013, a group of prominent religious Zionist rabbis issued a letter calling on public figures in Israel and abroad, quote, not to let a small group offend the thousands of worshipers arriving to pray at this sacred place on a regular basis. The Western Wall belongs to every single Jew, but we must all know that like in every public place, the Western Wall has conduct and prayer orders as well, both in the men's section and in the women's section, end quote. This tension between the women of the wall and its opponents has become more and more important as it's gained media attention within Israel and in the diaspora. And this diaspora issue is important because, as you listening probably know, many Israelis, though not traditionally observant, do feel an allegiance to Orthodox Judaism. As the saying goes, right, in Israel, the synagogue that you don't go to, it's an Orthodox one. Only 5% of Israelis identify with a non-Orthodox movement, like conservative or reform. However, American Jews are very different. More than 60% of American Jews are members of non-Orthodox communities. So this Kotel situation, it exacerbates the tensions between American Jews, who, as we've discussed many times already on This Week Unpacked, are feeling less and less connected to Israel. For many American Jews, when they see the group that kind of represents them being shut down, well... That doesn't make them feel more warmly towards Israel. So back to the story. The women kept coming, and the protesters did too, and the American Jewish leadership felt very strongly that this needed to be solved. So in 2013, then-Prime Minister Netanyahu tasked Natan Sharansky, who was then head of the Jewish agency, with coming up with some creative ideas for how to resolve the tensions. Sharansky proposed creating three equal sections at the Wall Plaza, one for men, one for women, and one for egalitarian mixed prayer. Later that year, the plan was revised and the egalitarian section was moved to Robinson's Arch, an archeological site at the Southern end of the Western Wall Plaza. And in 2016, after three years of negotiation, the government finally approved this plan, which is now known as the Kotel Compromise. The women of the wall were deeply divided over how to respond to this offer, but ultimately the debate became moot because the Kotel Compromise never happened. Netanyahu, facing pressure from Haredi parties in the government, suspended the plan just a few months after it was approved. Now it's been four years since the Kotel Compromise died. But with the new government, and with the Haredi parties now in the opposition, some of the women of the wall are renewing their calls for the Kotel Compromise. And it helps that the Prime Minister, Naftali Bennett, has supported the plan since it was created in 2013. Back then, he said, quote, I believe that the Kotel belongs to all of the Jews in the world, not to one stream or another. This is what the new egalitarian prayer section is about. In my eyes, it's a wonderful thing. It makes unity and peace possible at the Kotel. End quote. He recently told the Jerusalem Post that he's working to get the plan reapproved by January. The United Torah Judaism Party is not pleased. They said they would, quote, fight with all its force against efforts to revive the plan. In a statement, they said, quote, The Reform and conservatives are sticking their hooves into the Holy of Holies of the Jewish people and getting a foothold in the Western Wall. We will protect without compromise the Western Wall and its sanctity, and we will not allow anyone to desecrate it. So how do everyday Israelis feel? Surprisingly, even though they might not choose to pray there, 
a majority of Israelis support having an egalitarian prayer plaza at the Western Wall. A poll conducted by the Jerusalem Post in 2016 found that 61% of Israelis favored creating such a site, and only 39% opposed it. But among Orthodox respondents, 83% opposed creating the site. Meanwhile, following the events of last week, no one seems to be budging. Shas leader Aryeh Deri said that Shas would continue to fight against those who seek to desecrate the sanctity of the Western Wall. At the same time, the women of the Wall wrote on Facebook, We smuggled in a Torah scroll, but we're of course not allowed to bring it into the women's section. Security surrounded two members of the women of the Wall in attempts to take the scroll. A mob surrounded the group and eventually physically pushed them out from the plaza. Itamar Ben-Gvir, a pretty extreme member of Knesset, who's part of the Religious Zionist Party, who attended the protest, focused on a different issue. He said that, quote, police violence against the Israeli community, including at this protest, has crossed a red line. The use of violence against the ultra-Orthodox is intended to silence a protest against the reform who want to stir up the winds. Yochi Rappaport, CEO of Women of the Wall, disagreed strongly. She actually said that the security guards are not adequately protecting members of her group. In a Jerusalem Post op-ed, she wrote that, quote, any violence directed towards women of the wall is ignored, adding, quote, a woman arrives at the Western Wall in the morning and does not know in what condition she will leave. Will she be pushed and dropped to the ground? Meanwhile, in another Jerusalem Post op-ed, Oded Revivi, mayor of Efrat, who does not align with women of the wall, and Yitzhar Hess, deputy chairman of the World Zionist Organization, who prays with women of the wall each Rosh Chodesh, Together, they called on Israelis to overcome their religious divides. Quote, we cling to the hope that we will be able to find a place for each of us, Orthodox, conservative, reform, at the Western Wall and in the Jewish world in general, to speak to each other lovingly, like family, even when our paths diverge. We are brothers, even when we do not agree. So what's the bottom line? In 2013, when Natan Sharansky was working on this plan to resolve the conflict, He said about the issue that when he listens to one side, he is in full agreement with them. But then when he listens to the other side, he also accepts that they have a strong logic. Quote, we do have to find a solution in which nobody will feel discriminated against. End quote. Sharansky's message is just as relevant today as it was eight years ago. However, this issue is resolved, and I don't know what's going to happen. None of us do. But what is clear to us is that regardless of the sharp divides within our community, Forging a path to peace and understanding should be everyone's North Star. Too often, we focus on what we want, and sometimes we think, we can't compromise, we're right, with a capital R, and how can you compromise when you're right? But here's the message that I'll leave you with, and it's honestly a message that I often need to remind myself, too. We're a family, just as Ravivi and Hess said. And sometimes... You sacrifice for the sake of your mother, for your brother, for your child. You sacrifice even when you think you're right, even when you know you're right, because you love your family. We have to figure out a way to embrace the challenge of living with and loving one another as a family. And yes, sacrificing for one another at the Western Wall and in our communities. Thanks for listening. This Week Unpacked is a production of Unpacked, a division of Open Door Media. If you're listening to this and you're not a subscriber, come join us. We want to have you. Subscribe wherever you're listening right now. And if you haven't yet, take 45 seconds, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. And of course, we want to hear from you, especially this week. 
Email us at podcasts, plural, at jewishunpacked.com. Research and writing for this episode was led by Sarah Himmelis, and the team includes John Kunza, Avi Posen, and Rob Perra. Noam Weissman is the executive producer of This Week Unpacked, and I'm your host, Rifki Stern. Thanks for listening, and see you next week.